was the J cut and this is the K cut. My name is James. I'm a content creator and stay at home husband. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer to Say podcast. And I also write for Films Fatale about no budget cinema. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale. My specialties are the golden age of Hollywood, international cinema, and lost films. Andreas here, creator and one of the writers of Films Fatale. I love international cinema, art house. I also like a little bit of everything. I've been tediously ranking every single Academy Award nominee the last couple of weeks, and I'm continuing to do so this week. So uh, you can look forward to that. But let's look forward to something a, a little bit more immediately. So welcome to the K-Cut. If you are a first-time listener, we discuss all things uh, film-related, film history. Uh, we kind of shoot the breeze with our personal opinions, and uh, we try to find common ground between all of our different tastes. And that couldn't be uh, closer to the truth today, when, where we do our monthly cinematic smorgasbord. So if you're a first-time listener, what we do is we recommend a film to each other that we've never seen before, try to expand our tastes and our comfort zones a little bit. Furthermore, we invite all of you listeners at home to join us in watching said films, as well as our collective pick, where we each go into a film that we've never seen before blindly, and we see what our end results are. So this week's collective film is Tokyo Fist. We're going to be discussing that in the second half of the episode. But first and foremost, we're going to get into our individual assignments. Who was assigned what film and how did it go? So who wants to share first? I'll go. Sure. Okay. Just because my assignment is one you two have raved about semi-regularly on the pod. And it's uh, a little relevant considering that the director, Jane Campion, is currently, you know, out there in pop culture because of her latest film, The Power of the Dog, and it's award season, so that leads to the film that you were recommended. Yes, I was assigned her 1993 Palme d'Or winning film, The Piano. And? I thought it was really good. I definitely understand why it's constantly raved about. It was interesting because I didn't know what to expect because I didn't know anything about the movie other than that it existed. Oh, really? So you didn't know the premise or anything? No, and I've only heard of Jane Campion. I've never actually seen any of her films prior to this, so this is my first Jane Campion film. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good one to start with then. Yeah, so I guess we'll get into it. So it takes place in the mid-1800s. So it's like I knew it was a period piece. I didn't know what era, though. But I, I think first of all, I have to say that she pulled this off very well, especially from a design and wardrobe standpoint. Mm-hmm. Just aesthetically, it's just very, very well done as far as period pieces are concerned. And it deals with a woman who, after the death of her husband, she no longer communicates with her voice. Which I always find really interesting because when you deal with characters like that, trauma's a really there's such a world of trying to understand something like that because it, she's capable of speaking if she wants to, she just refuses to. But her way of communicating is by playing the piano mm-hmm. in this piano that she treasures. And the main premise is she's going off to marry again. And the first scene is her kind of like on the boat. And when she reaches shore, you know, all the. All, all the people native of the area are helping. And uh, one of the issues is they can't carry the piano. So already she's frustrated because she's like, I need the piano. And then after she gets married to this guy, oh, and she also has her uh, daughter with her, played by a young Anna Paquin. Mm-hmm. Yep, all of 10 years old at that point, I think. Yeah, like, I think the first time I saw her was X-Men, and she was she was a little bit older in that. But seeing her as a child, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize she started this young. And she was great. 
Oh, yeah, she was great. I got kind of frustrated with her by the end, though. And then, you know, she's kind of living life and she wants her piano back. And the way she gets her piano back is, um, I forgot, what is the main character? Harvey Keitel. Yeah, Harvey Keitel's character. He has it brought to his place and then she allows him to, or uh, he allows her to play it. And then it kind of goes into this really strange relationship that forms because she's there to quote unquote teach him piano, but he just wants to watch. But then he starts kind of like making advances along the way. And then it kind of rolls into this affair and it's kind of weird. It's like, this film was a very beautiful film, but this premise overall is kind of disturbing as it unfolds. Well, what I think is very important is I feel like Jane Campion was kind of rallying against a lot of what romantic dramas were doing at the time, especially like these big epics, like shortly afterwards, something like The English Patient, where Hollywood was kind of saying, if you're a female lead or a female supporting character in, in these films, like, you know, these characters, you would automatically like fall for these people. Whereas in her in her position, it's this love triangle, but both are you know, at the hands of toxic men, one who's, you know, it's this arranged marriage with Sam Neill's character, um, the stranger that she doesn't want to marry to, but she's treated like property in this business transaction. And then this Stockholm syndrome type of manipulation of somebody who lusts after her. And she's kind of forced to be in this type of, uh, false happiness. And I feel like it's something that a lot of people don't really like, they find it hard to digest and I can easily see why, because at the end, it's not necessarily a great outcome, but it's the one that she finds like the most solace in. But we know as the viewer that everything that was kind of handed to her was her being abused for being this woman. And this symbol of her not having this voice, um, I think, is exceptionally profound, because at the end of the day, she literally did not have a say in anything that happens to her or anything that she decides outside of, I want to have this piano. And ultimately what she decides to do with said piano, um, don't want to go too into it as to not spoil, but um, that was the only say that she had. She didn't even really have control over her own child. And I feel like all of this is anchored by Holly Hunter, which is one of my all time top 10, maybe even top five favorite performances I've ever seen. She's unbelievable. Oh, she was great in this movie. I think the other thing to note is the kind of strained relationship between her and her daughter, because she starts out by saying she does she she already does not agree with the marriage. She doesn't even want to call him dad. She doesn't want anything to do with him. But at the same time, while this is going on, she kind of tries to look out for him once she kind of gets privy to what's going on. Yeah, like she ends up acting like that is her father and she sides more with him than her own mother. Yeah. Yeah, and then I was just th- that that pivotal scene towards the end where Samuel's character has had enough and does what he does. I was just like, "Wow." Yes, that is so raw. And so much of this movie is very raw and kind of brutal. A lot of period pieces and romances are quite prettified. This was not. It doesn't look like a nice place to live when you get up close. The characters are multifaceted and aggressive and grumpy and all of these things. It's a different take on it and I think very realistic. And you're not yeah. made to like them. Yeah. Like you, by no. the end of it, you don't really like any of these characters. No. It's kind of gothic in its own way. I also love, you know, on the topic of the period piece, um, you know, aspects, first and foremost, um, 
Jane Campion is up there with like Julie Dash and um, very, very small company when it comes to having like the best takes on on period pieces, you know, with their authenticity and whatnot. And you brought up like the um, the ugly side of it as well, where you were even seeing how people like went to the bathroom back then. Yeah, or they walk through tons of mud. <laughs> exactly, they're walking through the mud and their clothes get, you know, destroyed or they use like planks of wood as like little bridges. And even then that's not really gonna do a hell of a lot, but she's not hiding from the truth. Like this is, unlike any other director, and there are very few that do convey this similarly, but for the most part, Jane Campion is like the absolute queen of period pieces because I actually feel like I'm being transported unlike so many other auteurs. It casts a spell. I mean, it's one of the few movies that ever really cast a spell on me and I will never forget it. Yeah, the first time I watched it, I was like into like extreme death metal and like that was like my horror movie phase. I don't oh, know wow. what it was. Yeah, I like, I had just heard of the film. Um... And I was just curious. I, I wasn't too knowledgeable of Holly Hunter outside of, uh, I guess, Mrs. Incredible in, you know, the Pixar film. And a pack when I knew from X-Men. And I don't know why I was so curious, but I was just like, wow, I want to see, like, a performance where she wins an Oscar for not even really saying a word. And uh, Anna Paquin won for being a child. You know, like, I want to see both because they sound like acting marvels. And Anna Paquin's not, like, a cute little adorable child in this. Not at all. No, she does a lot of the heavy lifting where um, where Holly Hunter has to speak vicariously through her. She's doing the heavy lifting. So what I ended up taking away from this as a, as a teenager who was, like, into all this really, um, you know, manic, chaotic stuff was... I really love a period piece that I never thought that I would, and this is immediately, instantly, against everything else about me, one of the greatest films of the 90s I've seen, and to this day, like, almost 20 years later, I still hold that, I, I still hold that opinion. Yeah. I think the only thing that kind of has me confused, she tied for the Palme d'Or. Yeah. Yes, I haven't seen with- this other movie, but I, I always find... Abnormalities in in that specific competition always kind of puzzle me. And it it also went to the Oscars and it did win screenplay and two acting awards, but uh, it was up against Schindler's List, so I can understand that it lost that year. Yeah, unfortunately, nothing was going to win that year. But as for the film that it tied with, if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, Phil Well, My Concubine, correct? I think so, yes. Yeah, that's what it is. Even though I prefer the piano, Farewell, My Concubine is also, like, a must-watch. That's not going to be my recommendation this week, because otherwise it would prove that I, like, did not come prepared or something. I've got something else in mind. But I do highly recommend that film as well. It's also exceptionally powerful and also a fantastic period piece film. So, yeah, yeah, I guess uh, since that was my recommendation, I'll go next. Um, And this is similarly one where... Uh, maybe we weren't talking about it on the pod or anything, but... And you and I have talked about it. We have, we have. And it was on my radar when I was going over 80s films, and I just did not get around to it when I was writing and compiling my lists. And similarly to you and The Piano, James, I knew of this film, and luckily, thank goodness, I did not know much about it, because I feel like if you know the premise, and I'll do my best to not give too much away... It's not quite as powerful. So the film that I got was Autovar Les Enfants by um, Louis Mal. Mm-hmm. And uh, first and foremost, I still have yet to see a lot of his stuff, but I think it's one of his best films that I have seen. It was just fantastic. In fact, yeah, off the top of my head, I think it actually is the best film of his that I've seen. Uh, certainly a heartbreaking experience. Um, 
What I love about this, and I don't want to say too much, I really don't want to say too much, it's, it takes place in the 40s. And you're looking at this boarding school and a lot of the, the new pupils that come in and you bond a lot with these children and, you know, their, their everyday goings on and uh, who they are, their identities, who they want to become, what they're like as students, as friends, children of, of you know, these parents, whatever it is. And that's when Mal in the film kind of pull the rug from underneath you mm -hmm. and suddenly it's... It's time period, you know, it clicks into place, and... And much of this movie is autobiographical. Which is heartbreaking, yeah. So, it, these are real people that Louis Mal, I believe, he himself knew growing up, correct? Yeah, he changed some of the names and details, but I think it's pretty similar to his childhood during that time. Oh, that's tough. Especially when it gets to, like, you know, like, the epilogue and, you know, going into detail about, um what transpired afterwards uh that's that's heartbreaking so it's almost like this tribute to these souls that really the world deserved to to know and the uh, bravery oh my goodness yeah i again i don't want to say too much james did you get around to watching this one yes what did you think in short without you know obviously giving away too much i thought it was yeah it's really hard not to give away all this but i think there's two points that i like to make about it one being that it's autobiographical definitely puts you in a different mindset once you realize that knowing that this was actually something from his life that he wanted to interpret on screen but also i like the pacing of the movie for the most part because it sort of fades in and fades out the moments where you need to feel emotion they hit but it's not over dramatized like the the main the climax of it is done in a way where what you don't see is almost more horrifying than what you know actually happened. And he keeps so much of it from the childhood perspective. Like, you have this... I mean, they still know some of the world around them, but there is this veneer of innocence for a good chunk of the movie, just because the characters are children. And I think he does a really good job of balancing that. What I love about this is it's not so much a film that is about the historical events surrounding it, which it very much is about that as well, because you get attached to these children, you um, get to know them as if they're your comrades, you know, people you grew up with, loved ones, and then history unfolds. It's not just about that, though. It's also about, you know, identifying and allowing the people who were affected by history to resonate as living, breathing souls as opposed to an element of this bigger story. And I feel like that's something that a lot of these types of films often kind of fumble with. And I feel like it's, I think it's just beautifully, heartbreakingly told. I'd agree. Heartbreaking is definitely the word and beautiful is also the word. You know, off the top of my head, because I honestly don't have like a sheet of all of the films that we've covered so far at this point, it's been like, 12 each more than like you know with the, the collective picks off the top of my head i think it's for sure one of the best that i've discovered through this uh through That's the good. cinematic smorgasbord yeah i i really 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 liked um what of our and um i'm sad that i didn't get around to it when i was making my 80s list but you know as i alluded to before in previous episodes it's a fluid list where i'm going to get around to making amendments and i wouldn't be surprised if it wound up on my 80s list keep an eye out cool 
Yeah, otherwise, um, you recommended that to me, Rachel. What did you... Uh, what film were you assigned this this month? Well, it's funny because we're talking about all these films we've known about for a long time or talked about with each other. And I think this might have been the very first or one of the very first films James talked about on this podcast. And it kind of inspired Cinematic Smorgasbord because it was what I had in mind when we were talking about exchanging each other's recommendations. And that was Pie by Darren Aronofsky, which is this really multifaceted um really complex story of mental illness and about um, mathematics and religion. It has all these enormous concepts, but it also has incredible aesthetics, the camera work, and like the piano, I think it casts a spell um, because it's so much contained within its own little world and it's so unique in its own style. And I really, really don't see how anybody could look at it and not think Darren Aronofsky was going to be a great filmmaker. From what I know, a lot of people, critics people I know personally, a lot of people aren't super into Darren Aronofsky, but even Pi, they're like, okay, like, like that's like the one film that I identified with, because I feel like it's like this, instead of like, uh, you know, adhering to its melodramatic sides or, you know, shock over substance, and I say this as Aronofsky being one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, especially in a contemporary sense, Pi is almost more universal, like, you can identify yourself within these conspiracies and within these, you know, uh, psychological episodes where you yourself have questioned everything and what it's all for. And, um, you know, the idea that the brain is such a multifaceted, uh, progressive, intellectual organ that controls and gets in everything, but it can also really be our worst enemy at the same time. At heart, it's a character study, and a good character study resonates even if you're not similar. Um, I will say it's a very good dis depiction of what acute distress from a mental health episode looks like. Yes, definitely. It's amazing. This was the film, because I saw this when I think I was around 15, maybe, 15, 16. And it was just when I started getting into more independent film and stuff. And this was the film that really made me think, I need to get more into movies. Because how it happened was I, I kind of went to the store and bought several movies. I think I remember correctly. I think I bought Pulp Fiction, Donnie Darko, and Requiem for a Dream with Pi as kind of like a two-pack. And I remember I watched Requiem for a Dream, and my mind was just blown how great it was. And then after, I was like, okay, what's Pi? And then I watched this, and my mind is just like, I, I couldn't comprehend what I watched. Watching those in a row must have been draining. Yeah, it was... Yeah, I don't know how to describe it. I think it was, like you said, it's hypnotic. It's just, it, it's this kind of like neo-noir psychological thriller, but there's also surreal elements. And the lead character, Max Cohen, he's often kind of, they don't come out and say it, but you, you kind of ask yourself, is he an unreliable narrator? Yeah. Because, you know, it, it depicts him like taking various medications and just paranoia. And characters are seen in different lights depending on how he's feeling. Oh, yeah. And uh, j just uh, the look of it also, because um, this is kind of an abnormal black, because it's in black and white, but it's not like your typical black and white. And they achieve the look through what is known as reversal, black and white reversal film stock. And mm -hmm. with the way it was processed, that's why it's like heavily contrasted where most black and white films come out gray. No, here, the blacks are black and the whites are white. One of my favorite uh, film experiences, I, I think, of my entire life was uh, when I rented this from the library at York University and they only had it on VHS. And let me tell you, like, the blacks looked so corroded and, like, that like, must be like a great VHS movie. 
Oh my god, it is. It, it looked like the, the whites spill into the blacks, like like these little pixels almost. Like it's so like distorted and crazy. And let me tell you, like, yeah. I, I was like, is this just a table when I visited it as an adult? And it's like, no, it really is this like you know, blacks are like one shade of black. White is one shade of black of white. And it looks like your brain is melting and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I actually just finished the uh, diary from around this time because um, it's actually going to be my next uh, Gorilla Film Fair article. And just seeing what it took to make this, because this is, it's a bit on the more pricier side as far as no budget films are concerned. Because I think altogether they spent like 120 something thousand when it was all said and done. But for this to be a first film and for it to be just this magnetic also sean galette's performance is easily like one of the best performances i've ever seen in my life yes like i it's really hard to think how did how does a person actually get into this character and pull it off mm-hmm. yeah it's uh yeah it's it's one of my favorite films it, it still is to this day having rewatched it it's like i just fell in love with it all over again and um yeah, it's also, it's not even just like his first film, uh, because the cinematographer is uh, Matthew Libatique, who he continued to work with on several films, and he's gone on to success in his own right. Like, I think he did, like, I don't know if he, how many of he did, but I know he did the first Iron Man movie. He's done, like, big things, and uh, it was also- A Star the, is Born. Oh, he did A Star is Born as well? Yep. Oh, that's cool. Uh, also, it was the um, beginning of Clint Manziel's scoring career. Which he doesn't actually have a lot of his own music. I think the main theme, and I think maybe a couple other cues, because the soundtrack is composed of a lot of like different electronic artists. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just reading just all the struggles it got made, and just like reading all sorts of stuff that that went into the making of it and the inspiration behind it. It's just like you know, it's like you said, it's all these things like you know, paranoia, like you know, stock market conspiracy theories, religion, math. And yeah, it was also, I found out it was one of the, it was the first film to be distributed on the internet. Oh, really? Yeah. 98. Yeah. That, that fits. Yeah. Well, I think it was a really great pick and I certainly enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad. But yeah, I think it was actually, I think it was the first th- movie I mentioned because it was the blind buys episode. And I talked about how I just bought it on a whim. And it was the double pack. Yeah. 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 So our collective pick was James's pick this month. So, you know, I always gotta, I gotta keep it interesting, make sure everybody's, you know, keep us on our toes. So I picked Tokyo Fish, which was directed by, produced by, written by, cinematography by, edited by, and starring cult filmmaker Shinya Tsukamoto. Yeah, and we actually, some of us watched it on a cult streaming service called Arrow, which is specifically for movies like Tokyo Fist, which is really awesome. Yeah, and it was it's it's a newer service that I just sort of stumbled upon, and I'm definitely going to be checking out more of what they got, because they have like a few of his movies. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Fight Club, and I don't just mean people punching each other in the face. <laughs> First of all, it had a very distinct visual aesthetic with lots of shades of dark and things like that. Second, I think it was really a meditation on masculinity and emotion and how those two go together and can or cannot be expressed in our society. Did you guys get that vibe? That's actually the perfect way to describe it. Yeah, especially because you have this, um, you know, at the heart of it, it's not even just like fighting. It's like a, a boxer specifically. So it's it's not even just about like somebody letting out their anguish. It's about them like taking it as well. So like this, this reverse cycle of, of dishing out abuse and receiving it. And, you know, I, I do... Um, I do say abuse, like, you know, that word specifically, because, you know, when it's presented in, in 
Tokyo Fist specifically. Um, yeah, the the violence and the uh, the actual like heavy hitting itself was like uh, they didn't hold back. It's intense, <laughs> which I think is is like hilarious. Like they did not hold back. It was almost like like extreme to the point of hilarity almost, which I think is fully intended, of course. Mm-hmm. And like all the blues and things that they used for different times of day and different situations and different moods, it really went all over the place. They handled it well. Oh yeah, aesthetically, he definitely pulls off something interesting. Also, how like stylized certain shots are. Like, I think the initial scene of the the two male leads fighting had some really interesting shots and in choreography. Mm-hmm. Also, the um, the woman in the movie, this kind of weird body horror angle, mm-hmm. where she's constantly giving herself like homemade piercings, but it gets like extreme in a way that just is almost nonsensical. I think what. Because this is my third film of his I'm seeing. And I think the one thing I'm appreciating, I guess the best way to describe it, he is to like David Cronenberg and David Lynch as Brian De Palma is to Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. You can tell where his influence lies, but he puts enough of his spin on it to where it's not copying. It's almost like he's trying to improve upon a conversation that someone else started. Right. Yeah. And the aesthetics, uh, you know, you brought up David Lynch. And one thing that stood up for me was the score, like the synth score. It, it certainly reminded me a little bit of what Badalamenti does with uh, with Lynch's stuff. And it's like, in a film that's like this violent, this intense, it, it was almost like this this softer underside where you were feeling like the fragility of it all because of the music itself. And like, of course, like a lot of the film is like intense in your face, but it was oddly tender as well in a very weird way. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, there was that bit about where it's, you know, the conflict is kind of rooted in trauma. I won't give away what it is, but, you know, there's a reason why the two two of these leads have a connection and why it's so volatile. Mm-hmm. I think it's also fascinating when you have auteurs like Tsukamoto who play so many roles and just effortlessly pull off everything. Because for him to do so many different roles as well as act in it, and he doesn't miss at all his statement's clear and he executed just effortlessly. Yeah. It's definitely its own unique vision. Um, yeah. Ultimately this was not the most terrifying of your picks, James. No, it you know, it's funny when I watched it, I was like, man, this is intense, but I was just thinking, I don't think anything's going to be as traumatizing as Sergeant Kabuki, man. No, no, no. <laughs> please, please don't recommend one. That's worse than that. <laughs> I think it's just how zany that one is. It's like, this is just really disturbing for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. But, you know, uh, since we're coming close to the end of our episode, there are some other recommendations we need to be doing this month. Ah, yes. But before we do that, uh, where can all of our listeners find us, Rachel? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are listed under the K-Cut, and we have all kinds of fun facts and Oscar commentary and stuff like that coming up. Amazing. So, um, in case you're a first-time listener, this is kind of kind of what we look forward to more than discussing the films that we are that we have been recommended. Um, we want to find out what we're going to watch next because it's we went an entire month for this. It's like okay, I've watched the film that I've been recommended. Now, what's what's next on the to-do list? And this is almost like a monthly Christmas for us. So, who wants to unwrap their gift first? Okay, I'm the youngest and most impatient, so tell me mine. Okay, so I hope you have not seen this. 
For the people who have listened to our podcast a lot, there was one particular actress that Rachel here loves the most, mm -hmm. and that is one Catherine Hepburn. Now, uh, I do feel like there's this dichotomy between film fans. Which Hepburn do you prefer? Is it Catherine or Audrey? And I am an Audrey fan myself, so... But I forgive you. I will... <laughs> well, you never know. I'm going to try and win you over and bring you to the dark side. So, um... What I'm going to recommend, and I hope, I really hope you have not seen this, I consider it one of the most underrated films I think I've ever seen, especially when it comes to thriller films. Have you ever seen Wait Until Dark? I knew you were going to say that, and no, I haven't. Thank goodness. So, I was bringing up before, when I was into the piano, my horror film fascination, which has since subsided greatly, let me tell you. One of the things that got me into one of my all-time favorite actresses, who's Audrey Hepburn, is this film. So I discovered it on a list of most like thrilling, scary, tense films because I was looking up all these other horror films. And I saw this one and I said, really, this? And let me tell you, Wait Until Dark to this day is one of the most thrilling cinematic experiences I've ever had, especially when it comes to like the era of the 60s. So you, um, you've got a film where it mostly takes place in one, one room, Audrey Hepburn plays a recently blinded woman who has to basically fend for herself during her darkest hour. Again, and it takes place mostly in one room. So um, that's all I'm going to say. You're going to have to find out the rest. Wait until dark. I'm looking forward to it. Amazing. Okay, so um, I'm the oldest, but uh, arguably, uh, arguably even more impatient, so I want to find out what I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... I've decided the next two films I'm going to assign you. Okay. But I think I'm going to go with this one. And I'm not sure if you've seen it. But I was thinking about what films that I think you might be into. Though it's definitely... It's, it's a very divisive film. Have you seen Bully by Larry Clark? I have not. Okay. So this film came out in 2001. It's a crime film. And I will say... Tread with caution, listeners, if you decide to watch it, because this is actually based on a book that is about the real-life murder of a uh, mutual bully this group of friends has, who's been tormenting them in various ways over years. And the one thing that is striking about the film is it's one of those rare films that deals with like teens and teen issues that does not soften the blow or mince words. Roger Ebert gave it four stars. And he was like on the side of like, this is amazing. And yeah, I, I think you might be the kind of person that could get into this. I'm not sure though. So I guess we'll see what happens. Well, I've only ever seen kids. I think that's like the only film of his that I've seen by yeah, Larry Clark. So I kind of, ex I kind of know what I'm in for. Um, otherwise I, yeah, I, I don't know much about this. So uh, it's, it's going to get interesting. I'm excited. All right, I guess that leaves the middle child, James. And I have the most <laughs> patience. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> so this is a satire. It stars Peter Sellers. I am telling you absolutely nothing more about it. Have you seen Being There? Ooh. No. Okay, well, I think you're in for a treat. Um, so Peter Sellers is the lead. He was nominated for the Academy Award that year and tragically lost to Dustin Hoffman. Should have won. Should have won. And I am very curious to see what you think of it. I'm not going to say much, James. All I'm going to say is it's one of those films where a lot of people don't know it exists. 
until it just pops up on their radar and then they just never forget it mm -hmm. ever it's it's a brilliant dramedy hmm. rachel have you mentioned this as a recommendation before it's entirely possible because I, I, so. I, I think i think it's come up before because like looking it up i do remember this title mm -hmm. well i i'm very interested to see what you're gonna think of it and i believe it's my pick for the collective this month isn't it Yes, so what is the film that we have not seen that we are all going to be highly familiar with uh, this time next month? Okay, so I'm hoping none of you have seen this. And it is from 1969, which was a bit of a weird year. And it's a com- it's a- no, it's not a comedy, it's a romance. I don't know much else about it, I've deliberately tried not to look it up. But it is the first Academy Award nomination for Miss Liza Minnelli, and that is The Sterile Cuckoo. None of you guys have seen it, right? I have not seen this. I have never even heard of this. Okay. I was getting very concerned when you were building it up, but then as soon as you said the name of it, I was like, oh, thank goodness. No, I've never seen this. Yes, yeah, so Liza Minnelli famously won for Cabaret, but she was nominated once before for The Sterile Cuckoo. I literally know nothing else about it, but um, that's, that's why, because I was like, early Liza, I'm done. Yep, hand it over. <laughs> that's it. That's all you need to know. <laughs> as far as I know, it's not a musical, too. So it's primarily acting, but don't don't quote me on that. Well, that we've got our work cut out for us. So we've got our, our individual picks of Bully, Wait Until Dark, and Being There, and our collective pick of The Sterile Cuckoo. So uh, if you have not seen any of these films, please join us on this journey and let us know what you think. If you have seen these films, let us know what we're in for. Uh, let us know if uh, we've made great recommendations or if you uh, fear the worst for us. Let us know your taste regardless. We welcome everything. So that was the K-Cut, another successful edition of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. We've got homework to do during the, mar the month of March. Take care, everyone. We are going until the L-Cut. Bye.